Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. How can Americans or the world trust a Pentagon that embraces cover-ups and lies when it makes mistakes? Let's get to the bottom line. Can there be accountability in the fog of war? And what does that even mean when U.S. forces bomb civilians from the skies in faraway battlefields and then willfully cover up their mistake? That's exactly what my guests today have written about in an explosive investigation by The New York Times. It's about a 2019 U.S. bombing in a Syrian border town named Baghouz, which was one of the last holdouts of the Islamic State fighters. After a massive bombing campaign where at least 80 civilians were reportedly killed, everything was bulldozed over and the file locked in a deep lockbox. In statements that now remind us of the type of distorted official communiques from places like China and Iran or Russia, the Pentagon said that just four civilians were killed. But journalists found internal Pentagon reports that talk about many more killed, possibly and even probably violations of the law of armed conflict. In other words, war crimes. Baghouz is where tens of thousands of ISIS families, refugees and prisoners were staying in camps. A few months after the bombing there, the Islamic State, which was once the size of Tennessee, crumbled. And the president at that time, Donald Trump, announced that its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was killed. So what do we know now? And what are the implications? Not only about this case, but about how the Pentagon does business and communicates. Joining us today are the reporters who uncovered the Pentagon cover-up. Dave Phillips covers the military for The New York Times and is the author of Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy SEALs, and Eric Schmidt, who covers terrorism and national security and is a former Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. He's the author of Counter-Strike, the untold story of America's secret campaign against al-Qaeda. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. This is truly an explosive report as I read it. And David, why don't you describe to our audience what the underlying incident was that led to issues which we'll get into. But tell us about the underlying incident. Right. So like you said, this is at the very end of a years-long war against ISIS. And uh, what was left of the caliphate's fighters were basically uh, trapped, corralled into a, a area maybe a square mile against a river. Uh, and it was just a, a chaotic scene with, with lots of uh, vehicles and makeshift tents and hand-dug bunkers. And there were thousands and thousands of people in there, certainly uh, many fighters, but also uh, lots of uh, women and children there. And we have to remember that some of them were probably there uh, willingly, but a lot of them probably were not. So uh, at the very end of, of this chaotic situation, um, there's some sort of skirmish going on. We don't have a whole lot of details about it, but uh, a secretive uh, special operations group, an American ground unit, um, called in an airstrike. And what they say is, is they were targeting uh, about a dozen um, fighters on the ground. Uh, but what ended up happening is, is two F-15E fighter jets come over and they drop really massive bombs on this area. And what they hit instead is, is dead center on a, a large group of women and children, uh, somewhere between uh, 50 and 70 people. Uh, and, and right away, um, as you can imagine, because this is the last stand of ISIS, there's, there's drones overhead watching this whole thing. And uh, right away, drones see what has happened, and, and people in the uh, Air Force Command Center um, in, uh, in Qatar say, holy smokes, uh, this was a really bad strike. We need to figure out what just happened here. And so they immediately 
preserve all the evidence, the video, the uh, chat logs of what people were seeing, radio communications, and they reported up their chain to uh, say, hey, we want you to know this happened. Uh, it might have been a war crime. We're not sure, and we need to do an investigation. Well, David, I just want to emphasize uh, something that you just said so that our, our viewers understand. One uh, branch of our military services that does geospatial intelligence, that has, you know, eyes in the skies, was watching those, those uh, you know, 70, 80 people, women and children. They had view of them. Uh, and then at the same time, another branch of the military flew in and they watched it like it was on TV and saw these people get killed. Not only the dropping of one bomb, but just to report your reporting, that those that had escaped, that were surviving, were then bombed again to make sure they were wiped out. I just want to make sure that's right to understand, you know, the, the scaffolding of what you reported. Right. And what was fascinating about this when we tried, or when we started to unfold it, was that uh, at the operations center in Qatar, like you said, you have this, this it looks like uh, mission control at NASA. You have this big room with lots of screens, and they've got uh, access to satellites and drones, and and they're watching from a drone that's flying above the, the, the ISIS holdout. They have no idea that uh, another American military unit, a, a special operations unit called Task Force 9, this is a very classified unit that we had trouble even getting people to tell us the name of. At the same time that the command center's watching, Task Force 9 has its own drone up, decides it's going to target this, this group and launches this airstrike. Task Force 9 is so classified that the operations center has no idea that this is coming. So they watch a strike coming in real time that they never knew had even been authorized. So, Eric, let's take the next step. The Pentagon has admitted killing four people, four innocents as casualties in this case. Tell us what the real story is and tell <laughs> us what some of the folks who observed what happened tried to do. Well, as, you, as Dave has pointed out in the investigation, we found out you have the initial strike, and then you have the investigation into that. And it starts, as, as Dave said, at the CAOC, this Air Command Center in Qatar, where a, a, a legal officer by the name of Dean Corsack takes it upon himself, says, look, what I've just seen, we've just witnessed through these drone feeds could well be a law of armed conflict violation, basically a, a law of war violation, and people need to know about it. And so what he does is he tries to push this, <clears throat> excuse me, up the chain of his command, both to his, uh, his boss, the top legal officer at the CAOC, as well as to the generals who run the, uh, run the operations there. He got nowhere. So what he does next is he reaches out to basically what's the investigative body of, of the Air Force, the Office of Special Investigations, presents them with the evidence and the allegations that he has. Again, it goes nowhere. He finally turns to the overall watchdog of the Pentagon, the Defense Department Inspector General, uh, which is basically charged with looking at this kind of fraud, waste, abuse, other things uh, the military commands either aren't looking into or glossing over or trying to cover up. And that's where I want to turn the story back over to Dave, because it was fascinating how one complaint led to a very important player on the, invest in the inspector general's staff who just happened to be looking into the broader issue of civilian casualties on the battlefield. David? Right. So, so this is uh, 
this army or sorry, this Air Force lawyer calls in to their hotline and says, this thing happened. I believe it's getting covered up. You need to take a look at it. And that report lands in the lap of, of a guy uh, who had already been looking at this. There was a whole team over at the Office of Inspector Generals who had already been spent, I think they had spent months already looking at problems with targeting and civilian casualty reporting in Syria and Iraq. And so right away, the, these evaluators were really receptive. They said, great, let's go talk to this guy. They get on a plane, they go and talk to him in a secure location, and they come away with the same conclusion that the Air Force lawyer did, which is, holy smokes, something really bad here happened. It may have been a crime. Uh, and so regulations require that that if we have any any uh, indication that it might be a crime, we report it. We report it to the top lawyers at, uh, or the, all the top authorities at um, the Pentagon, and we also report it to criminal investigation authorities. So he tells his bosses, hey, this happened. We're required to report. Let's go forward. And he runs into the same kind of roadblocks. Uh, people stall, people equivocate, and essentially, no one tells anyone anything. I got the sense from your reporting that there was sort of a fatigue there, that it's so big, so voluminous, so much reporting, people just didn't care anymore. Is, is, am I getting that right? I think you're right. I mean, I think what we've seen is this kind of a numbness is set in over the 20 years of these kind of forever wars in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. Uh, one of the other things we came across in the reporting was that at the CAOC level, back, again, the Air Command Center in Qatar, they were very suspicious of this task force, this Task Force 9 that, that Dave described, this uh, special operations task force that included elements of the Army's elite Delta Force, as well as the 5th Special Forces Group. And they started actually making a spreadsheet of some of these suspicious strikes that seemed to involve civilian casualties. And this, this unit gained such notoriety on the ground that even the CIA weighed in and complained about some of their strikes. So. It took a lot even to overcome some of the numbness that I think is set in on the battlefield over all these years where the military basically says, look, we're, we're trying our best. We're trying to use weapons that, you know, mitigate the, the risk to civilians. But you know what? In a case like this, when we're battling ISIS, when they're intermingled in a, in a dense urban area like they were here, unfortunately, sometimes casualties will happen. And that's kind of the mentality that's, I think, set hold in the military. But it's a different thing to say casualties happen. And you had recorded statements from officials saying, we regret the loss of life, we will investigate, we will look into it, which sounds like something out of a routine playbook. But I think the bigger issue is the heroes inside who tried to do the right thing and ended up fired, ended up having their careers ended. So David, is this the Milai of this generation? Well, actually, like, uh, I keep thinking about how similar it is to Milai, because Milai happened, uh, and it was immediately reported. Uh, but the American public didn't learn about it until years later, because the, the military covered it up through the exact same type of uh, official pencil whipping that we kind of saw in this area. They uh, created reports that found that, you know, uh, you know, witnesses were were not credible and things like this that essentially made it disappear. Um, and I think that there is a certain amount of, of fatigue uh, 
in in this war, and I heard it from people I talked to who worked in the Air Force Command Center, that they said, hey, look, like, civilians were getting killed, and, and you know, if it was one or two deaths that were unfortunate in this, this war that we really felt needed to be prosecuted quickly and aggressively, we were okay with that. And I think it was the scale of this problem and that something like this would not, you know, even be looked at that was a red flag, um, that you could make a mistake like this in the same military that was assuring the public, hey, we investigate these, we report on them, we'll let you know when we screw up. And no one was actually doing that. Eric, you know Washington very, very well, and I assume, David, you do too, but I know Eric walks the halls of Congress, I see him around. You know these folks. Is the oversight function of Congress culpable in this story? You know, you end the story with the tale of this Mr. Tate, who is trying through all different kinds of courses, and he's sort of sitting there as you end, waiting, trying to get a phone call from Senator Jack Reed's office. Uh, in the end, he said, I'm still waiting for that call. I'd just be interested from your set and the oversight side of this, has the, has, has, you know, I, I, are, is the U.S. Senate, is the U.S. House of Representatives part of the cover-up? I don't know if they're part of the cover-up, Steve, but certainly they could do much better in digging into this. I think uh, on the Hill, of course, we're, we're dealing with an incredibly polarized uh, environment, just as we are as a nation as a whole. And I think the committees are, are focused in much, much of their kind of routine business. And so when something like this comes along, and the Senate Armed Services Committee did interview uh, some of the sources we talked to, but as, as we reported, they really haven't followed up very aggressively on this. And so I think they are culpable, culpable in this because, of course, Congress plays an essential role, not only in financing the Defense Department, but in providing oversight for incidents just like this. And if they can't follow up when people have the courage, like Dean Korosak or Gene Orta, to come forward and make these allegations with credible evidence that that's been preserved, then shame on them. They need to be doing more. David, one of the things I felt reading through this piece, and I really highly recommend it to everyone, I know and I could feel how hard this piece was to report. This is not casual reporting. This is not opinion. This is deeply reported material in the national security space with lots of dimensions. I sort of felt like you guys are sort of the Woodward and Bernstein of telling a you know, very complex story. But I'd like to know and have our audience understand what the tectonics of this kind of reporting were. What came together? You had video uh, parts of this story that I thought were very interesting that were brought in. Can you give us some of the topography of what you needed to do to report this story? Sure. I, uh, I mean, it starts as a lot of reporting does with a tip from somebody on the inside who had, had witnessed um, some of the stuff that took place and was outraged by it. And from there, of course, you face a, a lot of barricades because everything's classified. Uh, the freedom of information process doesn't really work. Uh, and uh, no one will even tell you, um, you know, that certain things exist, let alone that you can't have them. And so a lot of it's very unsophisticated shoe leather reporting, trying to identify all of the people who might know something and, and approaching them all, you know, dozens and dozens of people, um, uh, to try and figure stuff out. And sometimes someone would only, wouldn't say anything to you, but might confirm information to you that you might have figured out. And so uh, it was an, uh, piecing that together. But then, as you mentioned, we all, we have this amazing visual investigations team at, at the New York Times. And I essentially went to them and said, here's where this happened. Here's the coordinates and the time of the strike. Tell me what you can tell me. 
And they came back with, with uh, you know, they had found footage from that day that uh, appears to show the very strikes in question. Uh, they were able to, to pinpoint it using their own process. And it just led to sort of the immediacy of the, the reporting that you could see it. And in a lot of these images, you can see women and children are in the area before the strikes happen. I mean, it is amazing to sort of look at the, those clouds rising in the videos a lot, you know, just, you know, choreographed along with the writing as you told the story of what happened. Um, Eric, when, you, when someone writes a piece like this and drops, you know, essentially a journalistic bomb as you have, my, <laughs> my experience is that lots of other stories begin to come in, other pieces either that corroborate or are in conflict um, with the stories begin to come in and, and help fill out a broader context. To the degree you're able, can you talk about other people within either the Pentagon or the National Intelligence Establishment or broadly out there that have able to bring you either, you know, more on this story or on other stories? Well, Steve, you're right. Obviously, when you have a story like this, uh, one of the goals is obviously to, to basically expose what happened initially, but then hope it emboldens others who you may have contacted and may not, who may be reading about this for the first time, to come forward. And all I would tell you, Steve, is stay tuned. I think there will be more on this story. So what are the next steps now? Um, have you heard from Senator Jack Reed, whom you've uh, referenced in the piece, other senators or members of Congress, about what they are now going to take action? And I guess the, the side piece of that is, <clears throat> what are the implications if you need the mighty New York Times to tell the story to get them to do their job? I, I'm just sort of be interested in what kind of interaction you've had with these folks. Well, we're still waiting for more reaction from the Hill. Uh, Senator Reid's staff is, is standing by the statement that they gave us for the original story. They're about to start uh, work on their big defense policy bill today in Washington. So they're a little bit preoccupied, they tell me, with that. Uh, but there'll be other investigations as well going on, no doubt, inside the inspector general's office. And, of course, the Pentagon now will have to answer some questions from other members of the media as well as The New York Times and what steps they're taking, both at the military command level, but also at the Pentagon. Again, this is a different administration. Uh, this all happened under the Trump administration, so the civilian officials are different, but they still need to be held accountable for the policies and practices that are carrying over from the last administration. David, I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> Hopefully, I can get it out right, but sort of a chain of command question. You wrote about Eddie Gallagher, and, and for our audience, Eddie Gallagher, I'll let you tell a story briefly, but is a complex guy, and, you know, the, the, the system of justice within uh, uh, the Navy uh, was not allowed to um, carry out what they thought was the appropriate punishment for some of his uh, alleged war crimes. I happened to be with former Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer <clears throat> the weekend he was essentially fired. Uh, he had made a statement uh, that a, a tweet from President uh, Trump didn't constitute a command in the chain of command. And then he called me later that night and said, Steve, I guess I was wrong. Uh, a tweet uh, is a command. Uh, and, and he was fired. And so I'm interested in the wobbliness of the chain of command. I knew the Eddie Gallagher story. This is another chain of command story. We see stories about sexual assaults against women uh, and being told, hey, let the chain of command. What are the problems, as you see it, in the so-called chain of a, uh, command narrative from the Pentagon? Right. So the story of Eddie Gallagher is the story of one uh, Navy SEAL chief who's accused of uh, killing women and children and, and a POW while he was in Iraq fighting ISIS. And that may seem like a very different story from an errant 
ground strike that or airstrike that that hit you know hundreds of miles away. Right. But in a lot of ways, they're very similar because they reveal this cultural clash. Um, Eddie Gallagher's men um, decided to turn him in and report what they had seen and. There were several steps along the way where the, the chain of command, it seemed like, tried to, to cover it up, not report it as required, quietly sweep it under the rug. Uh, and something similar is happening here. So you you have these these two clashing philosophies. One is, hey, look, uh, we, we, we should wage war by uh, you know means that may go beyond what the regulations say, and, and that's just life. And, and when someone notices it, don't say anything. And right. other people who say, wait a minute, if, if we are not standing up for the rule of law when we engage in this type of armed conflict, like what are we standing up for? And uh, those two uh, you know, different worldviews, I think, will, right. will probably be uh, at loggerheads forever. Let me just ask you finally, uh, Eric, the, the implication in the article as you wrote it was that um, Secretary Lloyd Austin uh, I should. It, it just was not aware of this. That uh, his deputy secretary, other folks at the highest levels of the Pentagon, had not been reported to. Now it's in the New York Times. Is there any uh, action on that highest level there, or are you still waiting to hear uh, what the reaction from General Austin is, or I should say, Secretary Austin? Well, again, what they'll say is this was this did not happen on their watch, their civilian watch, uh, and what they'll also say is that they abhor any type of civilian casualties and they do whatever they can to mitigate the loss of civilian life on the battlefield. The Secretary Austin has just gone through his own episode dealing with the uh, findings of the August 29th strike, drone strike in Kabul, Afghanistan that killed 10 civilians, including seven children. And again, uh, thanks to our, our colleagues in the visual investigations departments and other reporting, revealed that everything the military said about that strike has proved to be false. The assumptions they made about the driver being associated with ISIS, about where he stopped being an ISIS a safe house, about uh, water canisters in his car being bombs, everything has been proven false about this. And yet, and yet, Secretary Austin so far has basically signed off on a subsequent review that basically said, you know what? Uh, this was a strike, much as this, this strike was done in self-defense under ext extenuating circumstances. Uh, they did their best, but under pressure, they made some mistakes. And so far, no one's been held accountable. No one was held accountable in the March 18th, 2019 strike either. And so I think we get to this issue, Steve, of accountability. Uh, yes, they accept responsibility. Yes, they ex express regret for these casualties. But where is the accountability down the road? It's very infrequently that the military holds somebody actually accountable in that sense of a punishment, some kind of reprimand or rebuke for an incident like this. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward uh, in terms of how the Pentagon's leadership treats this issue more broadly. Thank you, gentlemen. New York Times reporters David Phillips and Eric Schmidt, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. So what's the bottom line? The post-truth era for the U.S. military and national security apparatus really came years ago, ushered in by WikiLeaks and Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. Before this decade, Americans were raised to believe in the righteousness of the American military. Other militaries, like in Russia or China or Iran, treat the truth like it's optional, but not in America. But today, no one is under the illusion that lies and cover-ups don't happen all the time. Instead, what stands out in the reporting of my guest today 
are the heroes inside the Pentagon who tried to do the right thing. The more they sent their concerns up the chain of command, the more they were punished while their bosses chose to hide the truth. But the more the military wing feels that it doesn't need to be bothered with pesky little things like the truth and moral responsibility and accountability and a rules-based order, and the more it openly lies to U.S. citizens and members of Congress who are supposed to have oversight, the more that democracy is a losing cause in America and around the world. That's the bigger problem, and that's the bottom line.